As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Coming up, the Lionesses' Easter gift, Brazil crack and exciting FA Cup. It's Lindsay Hooper here and with me today it's the Athletic's Charlotte Harper and Chloe Morgan. Hello to you both. Happy Easter. Hello, Lindsay. Hiya. Happy Easter. Have you eaten all your eggs? Are you egg eaters, actually? I mean, I definitely am. I've gone for about three or four uh, in one sitting yesterday. So that was um, that wasn't great for me. See, that shocked <laughs> me there, Charlotte, about Chloe, because we were talking just off air. She's very health conscious, isn't she? She likes her Huel drinks and things like that. So I thought <laughs> there'll be no chocolate. It's Easter day. Come on. When else are you going to eat Easter eggs? You've got to have a weekend <laughs> off sometimes, Lindsay. It just, um, yeah, there was just so many eggs in the shops. It was just, it'd be rude not to. I wonder if the elite athletes that are the Lionesses, we will be speaking Phenolissima later, whether they've been allowed a chocolate egg. Surely. I mean, they should do after that performance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Later on, we'll be chatting to Salon Andy Hickman about how to get inner city teenagers engaged with the Lionesses and women's football. A really interesting report that's come out. There's interesting questions in there that how can we, between now and Australia, how do we really work with mums? How do we elevate mums so that they are key influences in teenage girls' lives to, to create that hook and that engagement? We know how much sway they have over teenage girls' lives. How do we make her love for football and how do we make it easier for her to love, to love football so her daughter can love football? Yeah, more on that to come later. But first, the Easter weekend kicked off at Wembley for the first ever women's finalissima. James, and it goes to bronze, bronze inside to Stamway, brilliantly cut play from England, brilliant goal from England, and it's Toledo scores it! Is there one more chance for Brazil? Spilled by Hart, equaliser, Adressa Alves! 
spot. A penalty to win it for England. It's Kelly! The first female in goes to the formidable Lionesses. The Lionesses certainly put on a show for the 83,000 fans at Wembley. A stoppage time equaliser from Brazil and England's first ever penalty win for a 30-game winning streak. It was great viewing. Uh, The Athletics' Michael Cox and Brazilian journalist Julia Bellas are with us for this chat. But before we get to them, let's give the first word to player of the match, Kira Walsh. She caught up with Charlotte after the game. You know, we've not faced that before and we're going into a World Cup where that would possibly happen. So, yeah, I think it was a good test for us and obviously we've got improvements to make in the second half of the game going into the World Cup. But we'd rather that now than when we get there. It's about being ready in July, August, not now. So, yeah, it's a good test for us today. Did you like that bit of pressure? Um, I would rather the game be done in 90 minutes, it's fair to say. No, I think, you know, for us, we've got our top goalkeeper in between the sticks, so we've got full belief in her and full belief in the players who are taking the penalties. So, yeah, I mean, I was confident. It was a shame that the goal went in so late, but I think it shows that a positive result that we bounced back and could win on the penalty shootout. Penalties, do you do that on a regular basis on the training ground? Um, Georgia does. Um, but I think, obviously, before games like this, when, you know, it could happen, we do practice, um, yeah, and we practice yesterday. Um, but, yeah, I think obviously the regular penalty takers practice all the time, but yeah, that's not me. So yeah, I only practice before occasions like this, to be fair. We heard Kira say as part of her answer there, it's all about learnings for the World Cup. So we've got Michael and Julia here to start with this big question, which is what have the teams learnt from this game heading into the World Cup? We'll start with the Lionesses and you, Michael. I think... Maybe we learned as, as spectators that England maybe are going to this, the next level, I would say, in terms of their, the quality of their football. I thought in the first half, England were brilliant. We saw something we hadn't seen too much before, which was some good rotations down the right flank. Lauren James really hugging the wing and Lucy Bronze cutting inside and actually popping up in goal-scoring positions a couple of times. And I think England's performance down the flanks was, was just better than I can remember. Obviously, at the Euros last year, Beth Mead was fantastic, Lauren Hemp on the other flank, but I almost felt they attacked as individuals in that tournament. And I think this was a lot more about cohesive teamwork. And I thought Brazil really were dragged out of shape in the first half, in part because I was a little bit surprised that Pierre Sunhaga went to a, a five at the back, which I did think kind of just helped England get space down the flanks to start with. And that brings us on to you, Julia, and maybe from a Brazil perspective, what is it that you took away? Is it to do with that back five? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that was the most uh, impressive thing that Brazil did for this game. Not only that, but Pia closed off most of the training sessions. We didn't get a lot of access to the players before. So that was quite new because Brazil are usually a really accessible team. We get a lot of information. Pierre's not someone that usually hides her game that much. She always tells you all what to look for before the game. And she was really, really secret, in a lot of secrecy in this one. And I think that made sense in what she's trying to do because she's been trying to test her players. And I've been speaking to, to other journalists as well. She's been trying to text test how flexible they are and to understand how we can play in different types of games in different against different teams and to play against in England we have to remember that England are the best arguably the best team in the world one of the favorites to win the World Cup 
Brazil, if they try to really hold on to the ball that much, they could have gone too open and, and maybe considered more goals. And at the same time, they would be too tired for the second half. It's one of the things that Brazil have been doing a lot, getting tired on the second half, lowering their their levels on the second half. So I, I believe Pia was proud after because she understood how she can balance that a little bit, maybe not giving so much of the game control to the other team, but that was a good answer for, for her to have, that Brazil can have players, even players like the Midis, for example, uh, playing almost 90 minutes or 90 minutes and, you know, still holding off to their, to their game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she made that comment in the post-match press conference. Michael, what did you make of that as an explanation for it? And the the tiredness, I think, really it stuck out to me that that Brazil haven't, I suppose, had that that tank to go to ninety, maybe even if it's extra time required, one hundred and twenty minutes of football. So, where where were you on her explanation? I mean, it was interesting. She clearly came to the press conference with that in mind that she was going to say it from the outset, which I almost thought ironically sounded a little bit defensive I mean I just don't think it worked in the first half I understand that the point about conserving energy for the second half but I mean England were all over Brazil in the first half and, and I know uh, Sunhaga spoke about not keeping the ball very well and that was the reason for the pressure but I'm not sure you can completely divorce that from the system so yeah I, I get the idea but I can't believe that it was part of the game plan to be so under the cosh to concede so much pressure and I thought just allowing England so much space down the down England's right was really dangerous when you got Lauren James and Lucy Bronze just up against one fullback out there. I thought that was a recipe for disaster. The other flank, you can probably get away with it. Jess Carter's not going to offer too much on the overlap. But um, yeah, I, I understand the idea. But if I'm being honest, I think England could have been out of sight by half time, really. Especially if England had actually scored those chances, they could have been 3 0 up by half time. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Charlotte. It was, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did appreciate the the logic and the explanation. And I think Sunhag is always quite interesting when, when speaking about the tactics. I mean, some other things she said was interesting, like, you know, the fact that they had three centre-backs meant they were better at defending crosses. She made an interesting point about the importance of being compact horizontally as well as vertically, which was an interesting <laughs> way to put it. And it is, is I mean, it's interesting to play her a, uh, to see her playing a different style. I mean, she is a very old school Swedish coach in a way. She's very 4-4-2. She's quite rigid. So the fact that Brazil have got tactical variety, I think will, will work in their favour at the World Cup. But yeah, whether it worked here, I think is a different question. Do you think if Brazil had started with a 4-4-2, then they could have tested England even more and perhaps beaten them if, if England played the way they did in the second half? I mean, it's tough to know, isn't it? I mean, presumably, Sun Hager would say that if they'd started that way and they tried to play a little bit more adventurous, then they would have, you know, suffered physically in the in the second half. So it's it's difficult to say. And it was interesting, actually, when she was talking about why she played that way against England. She was almost, she sounded almost quite fearful of England's kind of physicality and, and you know, energy. And it's almost like she was talking about an England side from the 1990s, which... Yeah, I'm not sure whether we take for granted the fact that England are quite physically powerful and energetic and good fitness levels, but it's not really the thing I think about with this England side. I think about their their patterns and their movement and their their possession play. So 
Yeah, it, it was a really interesting tactical game. And, and to be fair to Brazil, once they changed system, they were excellent after the break. I mean, it was a classic game of two halves. And I don't know whether they deserved the equalizer. I'm not sure overall they created as much as England. But I don't think England could complain by the time they conceded because they had, you know, allowed Brazil to dominate the game or to dominate the second half. They had conceded a lot of pressure. And eventually just one mistake and Brazil take it to penalties. Many people as well, Michael, think that the penalty shootout was a good thing. And I want to double down on penalties because for both sides, you know, this was the first time that the Lionesses have won a penalty shootout. We also know, Julia, that Brazil lost on penalties to Canada in the quarterfinal of the Olympics in Tokyo. So the, there is something to do with penalties there. I have to say, Julia, we are obsessed with penalties in this country. When it comes to England teams and penalties, this is something that we definitely want to get a bit more flesh on the bones about. So let's bring in Chloe, because Chloe, from a goalkeeping perspective, which was your position, what what do you think we can take away from that? Oh, my God. I, I mean, if you got all day, I could speak about Mary Herbs <laughs> and that performance uh, for about 24 hours solidly. We don't have 24 hours, but if you, if you could just <laughs> narrow it down a touch, just a turn. <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll do my best to summarise. Um, first of all, to bounce back from, from the error that led to the penalties in the first place, I think takes great resilience and a great mindset. Um, and I'll touch a little bit upon sort of goalkeeper mindset in a second. But I think talking to, you know, the penalties, I think what made it easier for Mary Earps, obviously going into that game, she would have been armed with so much information, so much data about who the likely penalty takers would have been, where they're most likely to convert the penalties. Um, so she would have had that in the back of her mind anyway. But I think once you're in that game scenario, you've also got to read the game live situation. You've got to read body language. You've got to read positioning. You've got to read the mentality of the, the player themselves. And um when I was looking at sort of, you know, I was there at the game, but I didn't have the best angle because I was sat quite far away from the penalties and I was, I've been looking over the penalties all weekend, um, as well as the, the Football Beyond Borders report. And um, it was just fascinating to see the sort of run-ups that some of the Brazilian players were, were taking. I think their body language and their run-ups gave it away slightly. I mean, the first penalty, the run-up was slightly curved. And, and I think for goalkeepers, you've always got in the back of your mind that it's easier to strike the ball across your body than it is for you to open up your body open up your foot and sort of um, side foot it into to the right-hand side if you're a right-footed player. So I think Mary Earps probably had that mentality um, or that sort of in the back of her mind when those penalties were, were taken because three out of the four penalties were slotted uh, across uh, the player's body and the one that beat Mary Earps was the one that was side-footed in, in the back of the net on a, on a low corner, one uh, uh, into the, the low-bottom corner. So I think... Um, Tactically, technically speaking, Mary Earps couldn't have done any better. And I mean, she even got a hand to the first penalty, but it, at the pace of it took, it took it past her. But yeah, getting those, um, getting those saves in, I think, was such a good way for her to come back for, from the error that, that led to the shootout in the first place. So full credit to her because she was, she was absolutely outstanding. I was chatting to Karen Bardsley after the Leon game with the Chelsea penalty, and she was saying how women's footballers haven't really had that kind of cheeky run up or eyes with the goalkeeper or waiting and <laughs> so it, was, it was great to see Carolyn and her penalty of beautifully composed just waited and waited uh, until Earps made the first move and I think we'll probably see more of that in the women's game as is happens in the men's game as well. Yeah Julia is it more difficult for you to have takeaways from the penalty shootout because it wasn't your number one goalkeeper Lorena and, and I imagine because your number one is missing at the moment that it could change things come the World Cup but also from the takers perspective as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it was an interesting penalty shootout. Uh, we we lost to Canada in the in the Olympics, and before that, we had a couple of friendly tournaments that Brazil also lost on penalties. So it's um it's not a great thing for Brazil at the moment. But at the same time, you know, with so many injuries and such a different uh, style of playing that Brazil had during this, especially the first half, you know, I think they went quite confidently to the penalty shootout having the equalizer at such a last minute such a and you know an explosive goal that's how Andres Alves um, described it but at the same time when you look at how Brazil were t you know are taking the penalties you know Rafael and Tamiris are the most experienced players in the team and it was I, I understand that they were quite sad that of course for losing the penalties but also for having this this responsibility of being the most experienced the most sometimes level-headed players and yeah it was quite it, it's probably something that Pia will touch more on and it also reflects on how one of the most you know critical aspects of this Brazilian team that is they don't take a lot of shots uh if you notice on the first half uh you know Jay-Z would get to the edge of the box to the edge of England's box and you know, hold the ball a little longer, lose the ball to someone carrying the same. So it's something that they always kind of mess up in games recently. And, you know, they don't have a lot of experience with penalty shootouts anyway, but they have been having issues with, you know, aim and, and, and reaching the goal and shooting for the goal. So it's something that Pia will probably take advantage of the longer preparation time she'll have before the mm -hmm. World Cup uh, to, to try to tune that up a little bit. And that also affects the, the penalty shootout. So, you know, it's something that they need to they need to get right. It sounds like you're becoming as obsessed with them as we are. <laughs> um, Charlotte, you, you spoke in an article that you wrote about, and I think this came from BBC Five Live actually to give the full credit, but about the penalty order taking with the Lionesses. Explain to us what you found out. So Lucy Bond spoke to Five Live Sport. Leah Williamson was supposed to be in the five penalty takers and Lucy Bronze was sixth, Chloe Kelly was seventh. And Leah Williams said, Leah Williamson said, no, Chloe Kelly needs to be in the five. So she put her, they put her as number three. And then Lucy Bronze said, no, Chloe Kelly needs to be the fifth penalty taker. Obviously, the most decisive if um, it was to go that way. And that proved right that Chloe Kelly got the winner at Wembley yet again. But I found that fascinating. Me too. Serena Wiegmann and Ian Verink are so detailed, so planned. No stone goes unturned. And yes. I was sitting next to Michael and I saw them with their pens and paper and there was a bit of discussion. So to have Leah Williamson and Lucy Bronze influence the order of the penalty takers, yeah, really interesting. We need to know what Michael thinks of that. I'm desperate to know. My main takeaway is just that Charlotte makes notes about literally everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's always something, I think, why on earth are you making notes about this that turns out to be relevant? And this is another example. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems strange that, I mean, we're, we're speaking about it in, in a positive way because it's a good thing, but it does seem strange that there was this ongoing negotiation on the on the pitch. You'd think they'd be fairly set in stone. I mean, I know there's negotiation, uh, sorry, the substitutions and there's things to discuss, but uh, 
yeah, that was mildly fascinating. And I do agree that, that just in general, like having a penalty shootout and winning a penalty shootout is great preparation. And I do sometimes wonder why, you know, teams, international teams just don't do this in pre-tournament warm-ups. Uh, I know it sounds silly. I know it wouldn't be the pressure of an actual trophy up for grabs, but, you know, just have, just go through the process of, of, you know, taking five penalties, of having to do the walk from the centre circle to the opposition area, do whatever you're going to do with, you know, handing the goalkeeper the ball, which seems to be a big thing now. Oh, sorry, the goalkeeper handing the take of the ball, which seems to be a big thing now. I just think any preparation for that is quite good. So, yeah, I say they should do the same against uh, Australia mm. on uh, on Tuesday, regardless of what the result is. Even if even if one side wins 5-0, just have a penalty shootout to get a bit of practice in. And it's better than doing it just in training, isn't it? Um, Chloe, from from your playing days, do you remember anything similar happening where players just took over or had that major influence? Because I think we all just presume that it's the head coach that decides the, the order. I think, uh, I mean, first of all, I would not in any way, shape or form back there being sort of penalties being taken in the warm-up on the pitch. I think it would just give away too much information to the opposition. I think... Um, from my, from my perspective, I think obviously with penalties, like it's very, there's a lot of, it's a mental pressure. It's a massive mental pressure. And I think you've got to be adaptable and I think flexible in the game situation. So say, for example, if you've got a striker who would be your absolute favourite, go to surefire penalty taker, um, but they're not having a great game. They're not on form. Things are changing in the match. You've got to be flexible to that and you've got to have a backup plan in case that's not um, the first route. So and I think, um, you know, from a goalkeeping perspective as well, you know, you've only got so much information that you're given in, in the lead up, but you've also got to read that game live situation too. But I think I just wanted to touch back over and sort of Mary Earps. And I think um, obviously she had had a, a really great game, hadn't really been tested that much, a couple of shots on target that she dealt with absolutely perfectly. But I think it's just the um, the ability for her to go from that very last minute upset, that spill. And we very rarely see Mary Earps make, um, you know, critical mistakes. And when mistakes are made at the back, they're obviously very, um, obvious and uh, and fatal sometimes, and um, I think it just sort of goes to show the kind of resilience and strength that she's had, that she has, and that she's been working with with her goalkeeper coach Darren Ward. I mean, when you look back over just before the penalties were taken, and the, the, all the you know the outfield players were in their huddles, sort of Serena was talking to them, going through the penalty takers, and you know Mary Earps was actually on the side speaking to Darren about, um, or probably dealing with you know how upset she would have felt from that error. I mean, she's such a, a high performing, high functioning person. She would have been quite upset internally, but she didn't show it outwardly. And I think that for me was everything that encapsulates having, you know, well, the best goalkeeper in the world because she then went on to, to perform as, as she did. And, you know, you deal with resilience, tra- resilience and things in training. You, If you're in a drill, you do match time situations. So you'll be doing a cutback and you'll be doing a shot and then you'll be getting up for the second shot. So, and you never end on a bad set. You always say to yourself, if I have a mess up, you go again. And I think that's embedded in you in the training that no matter what happens, no matter how bad the mistake is, you don't have long enough to rectify it. You don't have long enough to, um, you know, to sit there and dwell on it. So you've got to get back up and um, yeah, credit to her. Before we let Julia go and wrap this up, let's get a final word on Brazil with you, Julia, because it's been described as a transitional team, no martyr. Um, I'm wondering about the absence of her and how that was felt, but you had key injuries in this one as well. Dabinia was missing. How are you feeling about the way that the team is evolving? That's the thing. I think once Pia took over the team in 2019, um, it was still basically the basis of the former team. So only after the Olympics, she kind of changed it up 
more and 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 you know use her 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 own ideas and her own players her own favorite players to to build this new brazilian team but of course she still has so many issues that she has to deal with like for example so many injuries and the national league is not as strong as in other countries and the players feel that when they have to play for example against england against players who have such a high intensity in the wsl you know they don't have the same kind of intensity right back in brazil that's something that she she talks a lot about it and she says every time that it's not about just sending all of the brazilian players abroad it's about building a nice structure in brazil so that she always have good options good players to bring from the national league or from other countries and yeah having losing marta is always a big deal because especially now that after she was injured for such a long time and she's already 37 years old she's not as an essential player as she used to be obviously but at the same time she's someone that the players look up to quite a lot and to lose marta is to lose the main point of reference the player who has been through it all who has been through the thick and thin who has been through the best and worst moments of the national team so you know she's always someone who will joke around with the younger ones but at the same time be there to give them advice to talk to them to uh, advocate for them in inside the federation so it's always sad to lose her for for an important game for two important games brazil are now playing uh germany but at the same time you know to know that she's going to her probably last world cup and to know that she's the only one left from that you know generation that had uh the the silver olympic medals that had the runner up in the in the world cup it's it's kind of sad to see this moment pass but at the same time it's kind of interesting to see uh you know younger players taking the leads like jay-z caroline yari uh you know even lorena uh who is not going to be in the world cup unfortunately but you know it's kind of good to 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 know that we'll have a future we'll have life after marta but i can't wait to see what she's going to do in the world cup it's sad because she doesn't have a lot of rhythm she's been injured for almost a year and when she returned uh she only had two three games at she believes cup with the brazilian national team so yeah it's not exactly the 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 ideal situation for her to go into the world cup but i i hope to see her in this world cup because she still has a lot of gas and a lot of you know games to play Mm. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure we will be keeping in touch, especially with the World Cup on the horizon. Uh, but Michael, Julia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Lindsay. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast with Lindsay Hooper. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Speaking of the Lionesses, Football Beyond Borders have released a report to answer one question. Has the Lionesses' win led to inner-city teenage girls becoming more engaged in the women's game? Now, Salon Andy Hickman is here to chat with us about this. Salon, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. 
I want to start with a, with a, a stat that really leaped out. 63% of teenage girls still don't know the names of the Lionesses, even after the Euros win. So how do you think we make women's football culturally relevant to inner-city teenage girls after the World Cup? We've got to learn, haven't we? We do indeed, but I think we we also need to ground ourselves in the progress that has been made since that point and that has been made pre the lionesses euros when there has been huge huge progress from the fa from big brands from uh, lots of grassroots coaches and clubs and there's there's a lot more we we have definitely felt that impact what we were really interested in and what we noticed was that girls that we worked with at fbb who were representative of a, a wider proportion of girls who largely girls who live in cities tend to be working from working class communities um, and largely girls of color were kind of left behind and weren't really feeling that magic that we all had the benefit of feeling from from the summer in terms of, of how you make it cool and when, where you go from here there's sort of kind of three areas that we that we talked to in the report one is that you really need to hero women's football culture you need to elevate girls in women's football culture and put them in the front of your campaigns and put them in the front of the media Two is that you need to really hijack men's football culture. So the spaces that show up so much in teenage girls' lives are men and boys' football. Men, men's culture still shows up massively. How do we hijack that and put our lionesses and our younger players and our other women's football heads in there? And then finally, how do we hold more space in wider culture for women's football? We've started to see it a little bit with people like Chloe Kelly presenting Brit Awards, that sort of thing. But we can go a lot further in that. And, mm -hmm. and I think your question, how do we do it after the World Cup? I think we need to do it before the World Cup. We've got a few months now so that we make sure that when we get to that that tournament in Australia, so many of our girls are, are ready, engaged, and they're ready to have that transformative moment that so many of us had last summer. I know that Charlotte and Chloe have got loads of questions for you as well. So Chloe, I'm going to come to you first and let you wade in. Yeah, I think, um, obviously, I mean, the report's amazing. I was looking through it sort of over the, the weekend and, and thank God we had the bank holiday weekend for, for the review so we could probably digest it all. But I think obviously, like, I mean, I, I do a bit of coaching. I've coached a couple of grassroots um, girls teams and, and women's teams, uh, mainly in sort of inner city London. And I think, um, you know, being mixed race and, and being gay myself, I kind of, I thought that there would be, I don't know, more diversity, I think. Obviously, with London, it's such a multicultural, diverse city. But actually, when I'm going to these grassroots teams, um, you know, and doing and holding my own coaching sessions, despite obviously me being sort of from a multicultural, diverse background, I was struggling to get girls to come to these sessions. And I'm, I'm, I'm mainly thinking from my own sort of perspective, like how, how what can I be doing? Or sort of like, what more should the grassroots side of things be doing? So I know we spoke a little bit about the Lionesses and kind of the impact that they'll be having, but from a grassroots fundamental level on girls just wanting to get involved and just play for the social aspect or the health aspect. I mean, what, what kind of things were you finding that the girls were saying about why they're not engaging with, with sport on that level? Yeah, it's a really good question, Chloe, and it echoes so many of the experiences that, that teenage girls in cities have across the country. I think this report, purposely doesn't ground itself in participation because there's so much out there around participation and whether girls can access and play football. Obviously, they're so intertwined and they ca it came up massively in our focus groups, our deep dives, our, uh, our, our surveys that we did. And what, what we learn is that, firstly, girls' first relationships, and this might be true for you guys as well, tend to be predicated through men still. So men and boys, it might be an uncle, a dad, a brother, someone that took them to the park for the first time to play football when they were really little. And that's that tends to be their first memory. What then happens as they get older is that if that person's no longer in their life or if that, that person kind of 
isn't as close to them anymore, that sort of thing. The relationship to football tends to become more and more complicated and lots of our girls have to then work harder to maintain their relationship to football. That might look like getting on three buses to go to the right place where the football session might be. And basically all these barriers come up, which are so widely documented and so many people have written on, particularly in the context of kind of the whiteness of the lionesses. And we've started to really unpack those barriers and people have put a lot of things in place. The FA, Discover My Talent programs, Nike really investing in local community programs. But what we were really looking at is that engagement point of view. What is it that makes you feel the love of football? And that's the thing that keeps you hooked for life. How do we make it so that girls feel that love, feel that connection, and so that they can then go, well, there all these barriers exist and there's this person in my life who's a coach or there's this scheme in my life that can help me overcome those barriers but then how do I create love for it as well and that's really a, the question that we have to answer between now and, and Australia I'd say. I used to work in Northamptonshire as a teacher and ran an after-school uh, football club and it's amazing you think here's the opportunity why don't you come and play football and there is just a sense of apathy sometimes and the barriers that Salon described they'll say you know, these children in inner cities or from working class backgrounds may have to babysit their siblings. You know, their auntie may have had to work during the night so the kids have to go home. Or as one kid said to me, Miss, I just want to go and watch Dairy Girls on Netflix. And that's why we need the hook. And a really important quote that I saw in the report was, I wasn't put into sport, but when I started playing, that's when I started to love it. I feel like because we don't play that's why the love isn't there. And so that overlap in the kind of participation and engagement is key, but you're having to get girls at a young age and keep them invested and interested. And again, another brilliant aspect of the report was what does a teenage girl's life look like? And an important word that uh, stood out for me was family. And so if you have that family support, if you have your parents or brothers or siblings that can provide transport or even just encouragement say hey have you seen the lionesses on the tv like, that looks great why don't you get involved so as salon was saying it's really interesting the engagement whether that's music or fashion or the the cultural crossover and we know that there are barriers with girls and sport but those barriers continue there is still a stigma of girls playing sport i believe yeah definitely and and that that exercise that we did it's like the world of a teenage girl we, we got them to draw a circle on their big a3 sheets of paper and just put in that in that world all the things that took up time for them or meant something to them and try to really visualize that for us and they could do it however they wanted and you can see in the report what what that looks like for, for a teenage girl and what we noticed was that the word that didn't come up too regularly or did come up a little bit but was quite small was football but what did come up massively was music fashion friends mum mum was huge mum was on pretty much every single teenage girl's world she put mum which then if you hold in contrast to who they said their first relationships of football tended to come through uncle dad brother etc they did they tended to come up a lot less so there's there's interesting questions in there that how can we between now and australia how do we really work with 
mums? How do we elevate mums so that they are key influences in teenage girls' lives to, to create that hook and that engagement? We know how much sway they have over teenage girls' lives. How do we make her love for football and how do we make it easier for her to love, to love football so her daughter can love football? There's lots of really clever little things that we can try and do between now and the summer to make sure that we, we do not lose this generation of girls like we've, we feels like we're starting to lose this generation of girls from, from last summer. If, if the mum's such a key aspect, it's a domino effect because you're talking about previous generations and their relationship with sport and football. Exactly. It's an, it's an inherited thing, right? If you've never seen your football as a space for you or sport as a space for you, then how is it that's going to translate into, into the next generation? How do you create spaces where mum encourages that or it, you make it easier for mum? It's so hard for so many of our girls to access football who live in cities. We know that where football sessions tend to be, where RTCs have kind of moved out to all these different barriers that make it really difficult for mum to go, yeah, of course, you, you should go and do that. I do think um, also there is a sort of the, the, the mum generation and the grandmum generation is a, the kind of mixed um, or a, mi a missed focus. I think off the back of the, the women's Euros, I mean, the amount of mums that you saw absolutely loved the game, you know, getting more into things after that. The amount of um, mums that then I've seen come to the gold diggers and some of like the grassroots sessions and just think, oh, I've not given football a go before, but I thought, why, why the hell not? I mean, I've never kicked a ball. We didn't have it in our schools, but I would absolutely love to just go and play. And I think the impact that they can see that it has on their daughters, just having role models, I suppose, like the Lionesses, go and absolutely smash things in, in summer. But you don't see many marketing campaigns around mums and the importance and how vital they can be to actually inspiring their own kids. Rather than the Lionesses inspiring generation, like the inspiration can come from your own family member if you inspire mums at, at the right time. But do you think there needs to be more focus on sort of, you know, mums and also grandmothers as well. I mean, they saw part of the FA band, some of the, some of the grandmothers. So I think um, there's missed opportunities there for me. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it's also not treating mum as monolith in this and thinking who are the, what are the different kinds of lifestyles and, and barriers and challenges that our different mums have in the world. I think it's really interesting because one of the things that we talk about in the report is, and one of the exercises we actually did was we got where lionesses were showing up in culture and we printed pictures off. So we had Jill Scott winning I'm a Celebrity. We had Leah Williamson sitting on the sofa of the Graham Norton show, I think over the, the festive period. We had Chloe Kelly presenting a Brit Award. We had Lauren James and Jack Harlow stood next to each other after a gig. And we printed all these off and we kind of moved them around the table and we got the girls to kind of pull out what stood out for them or what, whether they recognized them. Mostly our London workshop, teenage girls from ranging from 13 to 18. Some of our older girls really knew who they were and could, could kind of you know, point to each one and, and tell you who they were. But our younger girls really couldn't. We then got them to tell us what they thought of those imagery and lots of them found all, the, all of them looking quite similar. They would comment on their appearances and what, what dresses they were wearing, that sort of thing. But they couldn't tell you who they were. And I think maybe if you showed that to a room of mums, maybe they would know who, I, who won I'm a Celebrity or, or Graham Norton or that sort of stuff. So it's also about how do we tap into the spaces where teenage girls are at at the moment? What is on their TikTok feeds? They probably don't use Instagram Reels, but what's on the Instagram Reels? What is showing up for them? Who is showing up for them? Who has influence in their lives? And then how do you put the lionesses in culture next to them? The one image they all knew or, or were drawn to was Lauren James and Jack Harlow because they knew who Jack Harlow was. And then they were like, oh, she's interesting. And then they'd go and tap through on Instagram and see who this person was, Lauren James, that stood next to him.
And it's not just mothers, it's mother figures, isn't it? Because I, I'm very conscious, you know, I think about people that I went to school with and and you have got a lot of single parent families and families that are split up now. So you've got to You've got to group that into grandmothers, like you say, aunts, big sisters. I think that probably all encompassing, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. And we know that. I think there's lots of evidence in terms of participation data that actually having that that role model who feels a bit closer to you in your life rather than quite far away, like a lioness who might feel unattainable for you at 12, 13 years old. Having a role model at 18, 19, 20, who looks like you, sounds like you, is from your community, maybe went to the same school as you, having that person playing quite a close role with you can be more impactful in terms of your engagement and participation in sport because it feels much more relatable, more safe, more comfortable. So heroing those big sisters, those aunties, they're really important too. There are so many percentages that will just stand out from this report. So and I really encourage everyone to go and check it out. Football Beyond Borders Insight Report. 67% of teenage girls don't follow women's footballers on social media. That blew my mind. I think about Mary Earps on TikTok. I think about all of the players in the WSL and how their presence is on socials, whether it be on TikTok or other platforms like Instagram. And I find that incredible that it's not it's not reached 67% of teenage girls. Women's football isn't the thing that their algorithms are pushing towards. They said if, if a TikTok video comes up about women's football, they tend to just kind of swipe up and go on to the next thing. It's not present enough and it's not relatable enough in their life because it's not, it's not touching the things that do have whole, whole meaning in their lives. If you, if you contrast women's football to men's football, men's football is so pervasive. It, takes up space in music, fashion. Their favorite rappers will have lines about men's football. They will see their favorite brands do fashion collabs with some of men's football players. They all know who Bukayo Saka is because his, his personality, he's relatable and he's, he's basically pushed on their algorithms. We don't currently have that in women's football at the moment. We have a lot of people doing a lot of work to try and do that, but it hasn't penetrated our girls who live in cities in London, Manchester, Birmingham, yet because it's not showing up if you talk to them about kind of the, the music that they're into if i spice the rapper showed up next to leah williamson tomorrow they would all be following leah williamson it's about how do you situate these people and create those cultural crossovers that are so important and hold a lot of weight in a teenage girl's life to then elevate women's football in a really meaningful way one quote that stood out to me was a 13 year old girl saying what do you keep saying lionesses what is that? So two-folded question, what can I do to change the dial and what can the athletic be doing? Very good question. I think individually, we as individuals, I think it's about continuing to hero, continuing to champion women's football and women, trying to draw those touch points to wider culture that situate in a teenage girl's life as much as we can. I think it's also doing work with the people who set culture, whether that's brands or media, something like The Athletic, I think is about really situating our women's football, our women's footballers and making stories relevant in her life, I think, as a, as a teenager. And also a huge, every single girl in our focus groups, when we ask them, what's one thing you would do if you were kind of sitting at the top of the FA to change women's football? Every single one of them wanted more diversity, more ethnic representation, more racial representation, more ends representation. That is what the post-it notes said all over the walls. 
that we can all be doing work in that regard and we can all be continuing to support the work of the people already doing that work, the brands, Nikes, the FAs, et cetera, to ensure that that picture of women's football does change. Salan, all of this is so fascinating. And I did say that you would give a plug to the report. Where can people find it? Yeah, so if you go onto all of our social channels at the moment, there's a form, fill in that form and the the, uh, report Inspiring a Generation will show up in your inbox. So follow us on at Football Beyond Borders uh, and at F Beyond Borders on Twitter where you can access the report. This is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On we go. Uh, This weekend, it's back to domestic football for the FA Cup semi-finals. Man United welcome Brighton and Aston Villa host Chelsea. I'm sure we've all got an opinion now. Look, there's four teams left. We've got to have a a favourite amongst these, I'm sure. Uh, Will we finally see an upset? Because actually the competition has been dominated by the top teams in years gone by. Uh, What do you think then? Charlotte, I'm going to start with you. The biggest upset on the cards is Villa beating Chelsea. Now, that would be a cup set. And I think it could happen. The closest we came to an upset involved Aston Villa beating Manchester City. We did say at the time that was more of a shock than an upset. Fourth tier Cardiff City beating Burnley 4-1. What do you reckon to that? That was the biggest upset that we've come to so far. But yeah, we, we don't see many shocks and upsets in the FA Cup. That's just, I think, the huge gap between uh, investment at the top and the bottom. If you look at Arsenal in the WSL compared to Birmingham uh, relegated last year. So it's the constant battle that we're fighting with this pyramid and the disparity. And I think that's why we haven't got as many FA Cup sets as we call them. I think, um, I mean, I've got to agree with Charlotte here on the um, Aston Villa. I think there's potential. I think given their current run of form, I mean, they've obviously won four games out of the last five. Um, or we, we keep saying that they're going to be the potential disruptors. And I think for them, obviously, you know, silverware for, for them is, is, you know, opportunities for it is very far and few between. The cup runs being their main targets until they start sort of vying for, um, you know, the Champions League spots and uh, the top of the table type things, which we could see next season. But... I think I've also got to give a shout out to the Manchester United and Brighton fixture because, um, you know, a, a, a top team, you know, top of the table, Man United, bottom of the table, Brighton, um, going against each other would be, I, I just think there's something about Brighton that tells me they're going to put in an absolute shift and, and possibly take it to penalties. I mean, that would just be like the most dramatic weekend that we could imagine. And I, I'm kind of here for it. Well, they also have a new manager bounce, potentially, Chloe, because Melissa Phillips has joined them from Angel City. So that was the appointment that was announced just a few days ago. I mean, will she have had long enough to have a new manager bounce? 
Um, I mean, the, the, the time scale for her is, is very short. Um, but I think the only way is up, really, for, for Brighton. I think she'll want to get in. She'll want to make a, a name for herself. Obviously, she's done an amazing uh, job at London City Lionesses. Uh, I mean, she's taken the team, um, you know, to the top of the table themselves. And they've been in and around that, that top table championship position for, for a number of years. I know she was sort of well-respected with, with the players there. So um, for her to take the leap up into the WSL, I think, is the right move. Um, I think it's difficult, obviously. Brighton um, have a bit of a, have had a bit of a turbulent season. Uh, they're not mm-hmm. producing the results um, that that we probably would have expected from them. We definitely didn't expect them to be so far down the table, um, but they do still have those um, those games in hand. They've got two games in hand to uh, to Leicester, Reading, and, and Tottenham. But I think it will be a good opportunity for her to to really. Um, yeah, to, to sort of show how much of an impact she can have in such a short space of time. And, and listen, no one's expecting Brighton to win that game, so the pressure's off. Charlotte, my next question, I sense there could be an athletic article off the back of it. Should WSL sides come into the competition later? There is an argument for it, um, especially to get more teams lower down the pyramid involved and, and further through the rounds. We know how important that FA Cup prize money is to those sides. But then you just get a Conti Cup round two and then there's criticism that the AWSL sides come in so late and play minimal fixtures and then lift the trophy. That's the beauty of the FA Cup that you have, you know, teams like Arsenal playing, you know, a Cardiff City or, you know, a, a kind of a, a sort of not grassroots, but a sort of a, a much lower down the period type team. And I think it's really important for those lower down teams to get that exposure. I mean, it, it, it makes such a big difference when you've got the big top four teams coming to those smaller stadiums. It's sort of a, a stay humble kind of moment. And it's, uh, I mean, when I was with Spurs in the championship and we were playing at um, Chesham, and we had, it was Man City who came down in their massive elite bus. Um, the pitch at Chesham was shocking. The changing rooms were like, it was like a garden shed. And seeing the Man City players step off that bus and go into a change room that was no bigger than sort of, um, you know, a, a sort of one metre by one metre space that was just covered in grass and dust and dirt um, was, was probably quite a humbling experience for them. And I think it was, it was helpful for us trying to grow that exposure. We had so many fans down at that game, created a real buzz, a real energy, a real atmosphere. So... I do think um, the teams lower down the league do benefit from, from that. Even if they do get beaten, you know, the eight, nine nils, it's, um, it's still a great experience for, for everyone involved and to meet, you know, some of the heroes at the top of, the, uh, the top of their game. Uh, that is it for this week's Athletic Women's Football podcast. Charlotte and Chloe, thank you both very much. Thank you, Lindsay. Yeah, cheers. Thank you. Happy Easter. Yes, happy Easter as well to our producer, Sophie in the wings, doing all the editing on this as well uh, on Easter Monday. Thanks to her, um, to you as well for listening in each week. If you want to get involved in the discussion, do get in touch on Twitter with the hashtag AthleticWFP. And the handles that you need are at The Athletic FC and at Pod. Join us again next week. Goodbye. The Athletic.